Thanks, Sue. It'd be great if you keep that passage open. Um, and let's pray because we always need the Lord's help uh, when we come to his words. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word to us. Thank you for how real and earthy the book of James is. Thank you for the subjects that have been tackled in it so far. And Father, as we think about putting our faith into action, uh, Lord, we pray that as we put the gospel at the centre of our lives, our view of the Lord Jesus and all that he has done, we pray that would radically shape our attitude to money and the way that we use our worldly wealth. So help us to listen and think these things through in the week ahead, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to begin uh, this morning by asking you a question. Okay, I don't want you to think too long about the question. I want your immediate response to the question. And the question is this. Is money more of a blessing or a curse? I wonder what you'd say in answer to that question. Is money more of a blessing or a curse? Personally, for me, uh, my instinct, I think, is to see money as more of a blessing. With it, we can provide for our families. With it, we can give to the work of the local church to see the good news of Jesus take hold of people's lives. With it, we can support missionaries to go to unreached lands and share the good news of the gospel. With it, we can give to the people around us who are in very real practical need. With it, we can travel and see parts of God's world that will move us to wonder and awe and worship. And in very simple ways, we can use money for things like buying an ice cream on the beach in the summer. You see, money, like everything else in God's good creation, is a gift from Him. And therefore, if it's used in the right way, if our attitude to money is in line with what the Bible says, then it will be a blessing to others. But if at the same time our attitude to money is wrong, then it can become a real barrier to our Christian faith, a real barrier, in fact, to following Jesus. The Apostle Paul makes the same point in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. Listen to these words, for the love of money. Notice not money itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people who are eager for money because they just want more have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Some people, because of the love of money, have wandered away from the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul is clear about the danger of money. The Lord Jesus on numerous occasions in the Gospels is clear about the danger of money. And equally so, James is just as realistic when it comes to the danger of money and the barrier that money can be to wholehearted Christian living. And remember, that's what James wants, isn't it? He doesn't want a divided heart. He wants all of us. He wants wholehearted devotion to him. And money, says James, can be a real barrier to that, to living all our lives for the glory of Jesus Christ. But before we think about the what, what exactly it is that James has to say, I want us to think for a moment about the who. Who is James speaking to here? Because as you look at the language of, of business and making money in verse 13, or when you consider these greedy landowners in chapter 5 who are paying their workers peanuts, 
It's easy to think this doesn't apply to me. You know, James is just, he's just speaking to the super rich. He's just speaking to, to the super greedy, you know, those mega organizations that just accumulate and trample on the little people maybe to get what they want. But I want to say to us this morning that all these words are actually warnings for us all. In different ways, we all this morning need to think carefully about our own attitude to money, however much we have or however much we don't have. Well, the passage itself splits nicely uh, into two parts. You may have noticed that with the, the chapter division. In the first half, uh, chapter 4, verse 13 through to 17, James challenges our approach to planning. Why, are we pl- why all this planning in life? What are we planning for? And in chapter 5, verse 1 to 6, James goes on to challenge our attitude to money. Firstly, our approach to planning, and secondly, our attitude to money. So firstly then, what do we learn about our approach to planning? Have a look at verse 13. Look where James begins. Now listen. Listen. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Now James here is speaking primarily, he's got in view the merchants, the businessmen, if you like, of his day, who are always planning, always planning their next move, their their next venture, where they're going to go to next, their, their next investment. They're always planning where to go to and where these next deals are going to be happening. And the purpose of all this planning that is going on, you can see what their purpose is at the end of verse 13. Their purpose in all their planning is to make money. Now, in some ways, as you think about that approach, that, that organized approach to, to life, it makes sense, doesn't it? It's sensible in so many ways that, the, that we approach life like that, to think carefully about what we're doing and, and to plan accordingly. But at the same time, I think verse 13, what's going on there, it masks a secular worldview. These are people who are planning and diarizing and discussing without reference to God. He's not even in the picture. God doesn't even get a look in in all this planning that is going on. You see, don't hear me wrong this morning. I'm not saying that planning is a bad thing. James isn't attacking planning per se. I'm not actually saying that making money is a bad thing necessarily. But as we plan, says James, we need to involve God. And we need to be clear on two things. Firstly, our view of the future. As we plan, we need to be clear on our view of the future. Verse 14, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. You're making all these plans for the future, says James, and you do not have a clue what's going to happen tomorrow. That meeting that you had with someone might not even happen because you've got a flat tire on your bike or there's roadworks. You might be too poorly to go to work. All those things you had organized in your diary to do, you can't do any of them because you're poorly and you're laid up in bed. You might not be able to leave the house the next morning because there's a national lockdown and all of life changes. You may not even wake up tomorrow. We just don't know what the future holds. Now, of course, for the Christian, we know the ultimate future, right? We thought about that last week. We know that Christ is coming back. 
We know that when He does, the Father will present us as the bride, perfectly dressed before the groom, the Lord Jesus, spotless, without blemish. And we will enjoy an eternal wedding-like celebration in the new creation. We know the ultimate end, but we know virtually nothing of what's going to happen in between. And you see, God has set things up like that for a reason. To keep us humble and dependent on Him. That we wouldn't be arrogant and plan and plan and all these things we want to do for ourselves without reference to God. Firstly, as we plan, we need to have a clear view on the future. And secondly, as we we plan, we need to have a clear view of self. Did you notice that verse 14 again? What is your life? This is what James says about your life. You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. It's what your life is like. The morning mist that hangs over the coast for a few hours possibly in the morning. and The sun comes up and burns it all away and it's gone. It's what your life is like, says James. When you're out for a walk on a cold winter's morning, you, know, you take one of those really deep breaths you know, from the bottom. You, look, and you can see your breath, can't you? But just for a moment, and then it's gone, poof, like a puff of smoke. That's what your life is like, says James. It's fragile, it's fleeting, it's here one minute, and it's gone the next. And when you have a clear view of yourself and your own mortality, you can begin to see how foolish and arrogant it is to plan your future without reference to God. All those places that you're going to visit, All those different things that you're going to do with your life, those career, it's all mapped out, right? Everything you're going to do. But it could come to an end just like that. Clear view of the future and a clear view of self, says James. Instead, look, verse 15. You ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. To paraphrase, We need to submit all our plans to the sovereign will of God. What does that look like in practice? It doesn't mean that we have to end every single sentence by saying, if it's the Lord's will, catch up tomorrow if it's the Lord's will. I'll see you next week if it's the Lord's will. I'll fill you in later if it's the Lord's will. You see, those words there, they're not not just magic words that we, we tag on to the end of every sentence. What matters is an attitude of our hearts. That as we make our plans, we do so with a conscious awareness of God and of who He is. That we do not leave Him out of the picture. Instead, we recognize that all of our thinking and all of our planning is subject to the will of God and what God wants. You see, He's in charge of tomorrow and the next day and the next week and the next month and the next year, if that even comes, not us. But so often we plan like we're the ones in charge and we've got it all mapped out. And God himself is just squeezed out of the picture. To live like that, like God's not in charge, is simply arrogant, says James. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All these things you're planning on doing, you've not even involved God. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. You see, we tend to talk about sin, don't we, as doing the wrong things. 
But we also need to understand that sin is failing to do the right thing. And the right thing, says James here, in this context, is to involve God in all of your planning and all of your doing, from the big things down to the small things. From planning a big life event like a wedding, right? Kieran and Becky, all the detail that goes into the planning, all the way down to planning what I'm going to do with my day off next Saturday, and everything in between. We need to involve God in all of our lives. And I think the best way to do that is by committing all of our plans to the Lord in prayer. One thing that I've tried to do over the years, I've not done this all the time, I've not necessarily done it that well, but is to pray through my diary. So the first thing I'll do on a Monday morning before I flick on the computer and get down to my work, you know, all those things that I've got planned, The first thing I try and do, I just open up my diary and I pray through the different things that are on that week. The different events that are coming up. The different people that I'm maybe going to be meeting with. The bits of time in the diary that are being given over to preparation for Sunday. The people maybe that you've planned to visit. Even those blanks in the diary where you've not planned anything, but you pray that that even those times will be used wisely, that those free bits of time will be used in a way that brings glory to God, that God's will be done. That God may overrule all my plans if necessary. You know, it's, it's godly to plan and think about how to use our time. But we want the Lord's will to be done. And we need to be ready to let the Lord overrule in all these things. And we do that by submitting all of our lives to him in prayer, that God might get the glory. You see, if there's one thing I'll change at the end of verse 13, as you think about the planning that's going on there, it's this. Because the planning's not bad per se. Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and give God the glory. That's what you'd love them to say, isn't it? Not all this planning to make money, but all this planning to give God the glory. You see, there is no problem with planning. But plan your life, order your life in such a way that will bring God the greatest glory. You see, our ultimate goal in life is not making money. It's not accumulating stuff for ourselves, but it's things that will count in eternity. It's showing Christ to this world. And it's living with Him as the great treasure of our hearts. Firstly, James challenges our approach to planning And then secondly, sorry, firstly, our approach to planning. Secondly, he challenges our attitude to money. And there is a link as well, of course, between these two things. Have a look at chapter 5, verse 1 to 3. Now listen, again, listen. You rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you. And eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Now some commentators here are are convinced that James can't be speaking about the church or professing Christians because the condemnation here is so great. But given the context of the letter and what we've seen so far, I don't actually think that fits very well. Because back in James chapter 1, verse 1, we learn that James is writing to professing Christians, those who profess to know and love the Lord Jesus. And secondly, we've seen already the the blunt language, right, that James uses throughout this letter. What we read here is perfectly in sync with how James has already been speaking. 
He's already told us that our tongues are full of deadly poison. That we're arrogant, double-minded, and adulterous. You see, James isn't shy in coming forward. He's quick to expose sin and wrongdoing in people's hearts. And so it seems to me here that James is still addressing the church at least to some degree. Because the church, as we've seen earlier in James, is being polluted by the ways and the thinking of this world. The way that the world approaches money, says James, it is to different degrees creeping into the life of the local church. And that, that godless attitude towards money is something I think that needs to be repented of. Verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. The image that came to my mind when I read this was the Boxing Day tsunami. All those people on the coast of Indonesia enjoying their holiday bliss, a time of of luxury and self-indulgence, verse 5. But as that great wall of water approached, They must have been overcome by a sudden realization that they were going to lose everything. They were going to lose it all. That's the point James is making in verse 1. It's all going to go. But notice the problem isn't that they've got money per se. The problem is their attitude to money. And that comes across in two ways. It comes across firstly in the fact that they're hoarding their wealth. And James says stop hoarding. See that at the end of verse 3? You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Which is remarkable, isn't it? We're in the last days. Jesus Christ has come into this world and He has died on a cross for our sin to take it away. He has risen to new life and conquered the grave to make all things new. He has risen gloriously, ascended into heaven where He's now seated at His Father's right hand. And one day soon, because we're in the last days, one day soon, Jesus will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. And tragically, even though that day is nearly upon us, some people are still hoarding money for themselves, even though it's all going to go as we saw last week, because Jesus is coming back. And that's why James in verse 2 and verse 3 draws on the teaching of the Lord Jesus. Because our attitude to money is a clear indication of where our heart is before God. Do not store up for yourselves. Do not hoard treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in, and still, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. James is challenging this attitude to storing up and to accumulating more and more stuff here on earth. And he says them in verse 3, it's those very treasures that testify against you. All those things that we gather and hoard for ourselves, it's those very things that testify against you because they show what you really love in your heart of hearts. One of the first books that I read actually as a Christian uh, was this one called Don't Waste Your Life uh, by John Piper. Incredibly challenging book about not wasting our life, pursuing the things of this world, but actually pursuing things that will count in eternity. I just want to read you one little section of this because this this stayed with me from being a very young Christian. 
This is what he says. I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. Tragically, this was their dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life, before you give an account to your Creator, be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at that great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? This is tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. We all know people in their own different way who are playing softball, collecting shells, and they'll stand before their creator on that last day, and they'll present him with these meaningless things, their trophies that they've collected, their money that they've accumulated, or the initials that they've got next to their name, and they will stand before the God who made them without Christ. Don't waste your life. Don't hoard up this stuff. Do not pursue these things that will not last. Pursue the things that will count in eternity. Pursue Christ. Pursue the gospel. Pursue people that don't know Christ. That they might stand before God and they'll say, I know Jesus. I've got nothing to my name. I've not got a penny in my bank account. I've not got a PhD. I've not even got a GCSE. But it matters not because I've got Christ. And he's the greatest treasure of my heart. Now, of course, we need to work out the difference, right, between hoarding money and saving wisely. It's not always a bad thing to save money. <laughs> we need to be thoughtful in saving for, you know, children, all that sort of stuff. But what's the difference between saving wisely and hoarding or worldly wealth? And we need to work out the difference as well between what it looks like to enjoy the good things in creation. Like God's given us so much good stuff to enjoy now. What's the difference between enjoying the good things now and living these lives of luxury and self-indulgence that James is speaking about? Do you see that in verse 5? You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fatten yourselves in the day of slaughter. James here likens these people to cattle who've been fattened up, ready to go to the market. They're constantly feeding themselves on worldly pleasures. They're continuing to live these luxurious, self-indulgent lives as they hoard at more stuff. But the day of slaughter, the day of judgment is coming. Stop hoarding, says James, and stop defrauding. Stop hoarding money and stop defrauding others. Can you see that verse 4? Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. 
Not only are these wealthy landowners driven by greed, but they're also willing to trample on the vulnerable in order to get what they want. You see that in verse 4? They've hired this whole army of workers to, to harvest their crops and to fill their barns, but they haven't paid them a penny. And of course, in those days, there's no such thing as credit cards or saving accounts. So if there's no wage packet at the end of the day, there is no meal on the table in the evening. These vulnerable workers have been exploited by those who are reaping the benefits. And that's so often the case today, isn't it? That the poor get trampled into the dust as the wealthy continue their march towards more and more riches. But remember verse 4, God sees and God hears. The cries of the harvest as those exploited workers have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. God is not oblivious to what's happening. And he will act against the oppressor and on behalf of the oppressed. Now as you try and apply verse 4 to our own lives today, it's maybe a little bit trickier. Uh, maybe we're not guilty of withholding wages or any other form of exploitation that's quite as obvious as that. But the principle, I think, is clear. Our lifestyle will have an impact on others. How we obtain our money, where we spend our money, and how we use our money will leave a mark in the lives of other people. In fact, look how James concludes this little section in verse 6. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. It's hard to work out exactly what's going on here, but what is clear is that the actions of the greedy rich are resulting not only in hardship, but also the death of innocent victims. Got me thinking, I thought back to the World Cup last year in Qatar, which brought in revenue somewhere over the value of £6 billion. Yet it was reported that somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 migrant workers lost their lives building stadiums and infrastructure for low wages in terrible working conditions. That feels like something of what James is getting at here. As the wealthy make their money, so often the vulnerable pay the price. And if we're not careful, even without knowing it, we sort of play our part in that because of what we support and the places where we go to to buy our stuff. And we're not necessarily knowing how those things have been sourced. But I wonder as we close, if James is also drawing our attention here to something else. Have a look again at verse 6, and tell me who comes to mind. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Who comes to mind as you read verse 6? The Lord Jesus, the innocent one. You see, all the, the injustice that is present around us in this world, and that has been for centuries upon centuries, is just a picture, just a shadow of that great injustice that has already taken place when the Lord Jesus, the King of kings, God himself, the innocent one, who was without fault, was condemned to death, and murdered on a cross. And here's the bit that got me. Why did it happen? For the love of money. Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus 
and handed him over to the authorities for a measly sum of 30 pieces of silver because he loved money and he loved wealth and he loved stuff now more than he loved the Lord Jesus. That's why he handed him over. And so as we close, I want to do so with a very simple question by way of application. Do you love money? Or do you love Jesus? Because actually it's a choice between the two. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money has caused so much damage in this world. And as Jesus says in Matthew 6 verse 24, you cannot serve both God and money. You can't serve both. You cannot live for both and you cannot love both. So do you love Jesus? Or do you love your worldly wealth? Are you storing up treasures here on earth that will very soon be gone? Or are you storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven that will last for all eternity? Let me take a moment to reflect as you think about your approach to planning and making sure God is in that and your attitude to money and making sure that that is used for the glory of God above everything else. And then we'll... Come to sing God's praise.